Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Cutting inflation and stopping illegal migration, two of the government's five core priorities. But there's no let-up in inflation and a lot of unhappiness with the government's policy on asylum seekers. It is isolationist. It is morally unacceptable and politically impractical. Welcome to The Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, George Parker. You heard there the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, speaking in the House of Lords. But while Westminster's focused on illegal boat arrivals, what about legal migration? That's soaring too, in spite of the Conservative promise in 2019 that numbers would come down. I'll be discussing that and the UK's sticky inflation problem with our economics correspondent Delphine Strauss and economics editor Chris Giles. Plus, the country's stretched public finances are still for a mammoth compensation bill. Ministers privately say that anywhere between five to ten billion pounds in payouts could go to those affected by an historic NHS-contaminated blood scandal. We'll get the details from the FT's Sarah Neville and hear from Barry Flynn, one of the victims who was infected with hepatitis C and has severe haemophilia A. So inflation is going to be sticking around for a while yet, the next three years at least. So says the Bank of England, which raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point to 4.5% this week, its 12th consecutive rate rise since December 2021. Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, said the source of inflation was unexpected. Inflation is it's just under 1% higher at this point in time than we expected it to be in February. That difference is actually really not really about the persistent element of inflation. So if you look at services, if you look at wages and remuneration, they are actually pretty much on track with what we bought in February. The, the news is mainly on, on food and clothing. Chris Giles, Delphine Strauss, thank you for joining us. So, Chris, Andrew Bailey said in the past he's sensitive to cash-strapped households, but there isn't really that much the Bank of England can do, is there, when inflation's proving so hard to budge and rates only seem to be going one way and that's up? They do, and there was nothing in what the Bank of England said to make people think that interest rates aren't likely to go up a little bit further. It's reinforced expectations that they're going to go up from 4.5%, possibly up to 5%. But, you know, we've been saying this every time. It was, first of all, it was about 3%, then 4 now 5 The key thing that's happened is inflation hasn't got under control, and the Bank of England's forecasts show that it's a lot higher over the next three years than they expected only as recently as three months ago. And you at the press conference with Andrew Bailey, they're normally fairly genteel affairs. Is he starting to feel the heat a bit? It was quite a hostile press conference, actually. He was asked whether the bank had any credibility anymore. He was asked how he would evaluate his own performance if inflation's above target for five years consecutively. He was asked what policy mistakes he would accept. And so it's quite tough because... You know, central bankers normally get a much easier ride mm. than politicians. And the bank, it pushes back, but also I think sometimes feels a little bit hurt that people are actually holding it to account for its target. This is a law. It has to keep inflation at 
2% at all times. And what we're looking at is that the bank's own forecasts show basically a 50-50 chance of it being above 2% for five years consecutively between the middle of 2021 and the middle of 2026. That's incredible. What does it mean for Rishi Sunak's economic pledges and in particular his promise to halve inflation? Well, at the moment, the Bank of England still expects Rishi Sunak to meet his pledge to halve inflation because the Treasury did define it in the budget. And so they defined it to be halving from the Q4 2022 rate of 10.7% to the end of this year, which the bank thinks will be just over 5%. So there's a 50-50 chance of it being around 53 So mm. where it looked a few months ago as if there was no chance he wouldn't meet it. And that's why the Treasury designed it to be halving, because they thought they could just meet it. People didn't know that inflation was going to drop away. But now it's looking all pretty tight. So Delphine, how much of this inflation is being driven now by higher wages? So... The bank on Thursday pointed to food inflation as the big reason why its inflation forecasts would look higher than they did in the short run. But they're obviously really uncomfortable about wage growth. Bank of England officials make themselves extremely unpopular whenever they suggest that people shouldn't be pushing for big wage rises. There's still a huge amount of pressure in the public sector for the government to be more generous with the pay deals that are still disputed. There are lots of unions running fresh strike ballots and looking quite likely to get them through. And in the private sector, while pay growth has slowed a bit, pay settlements are still running somewhere around 6%. That's a long way below inflation, and it's a lot higher than the Bank of England would like. Mm. And by the time inflation is finally under control, how much poorer will we all feel? I don't think there's a sort of clear-cut answer to that. I think a lot of people's pay was boosted over the last year by one-off bonuses or sort of cost of living compensation payments that employers conceded either because they were very hard pushed to find staff or because they were genuinely sympathetic. And a lot of people are thinking that they're really going to feel the pinch over the next year. Mm. They might get a slightly higher consolidated pay rise, but they're still going to be poorer. And when people hear the Prime Minister say he wants to halve inflation. The polling suggests that the public think that that means prices are going to be falling. And they could be in for a nasty shock, couldn't they, Chris, next year, when they find out they're actually they're still finding even harder to make ends meet. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to <laughs> speak ill of the public, but the public's understanding of what inflation is, and this is probably a failure of us as journalists and economists, is very, very bad. And they don't understand that inflation is the change in prices rather than the level of prices. And the public's real concern is about the level of prices, that they've gone up a lot and their salaries and payments, unless they're pensioners or something like that, who's protected, haven't gone up so much. And so even when the rate of change of prices, inflation falls to 5%, the level will still be high, prices will still be going up. And if you're unlucky, your salary will not have gone up or you will be paying a lot higher mortgage payments. So you'll still be worse off. And that won't happen to just a few people. That will happen to many millions of people and households by the end of this year. So the idea that by having inflation halve, everyone will suddenly feel better is ludicrous. And, yeah, we've just been talking about the Bank of England's patchy forecasting record. From what we can tell from what Andrew Bailey was saying this week, how will the economy be looking and how will people be feeling, let's say, in the autumn of 2024 as we go into an election? Well, the good news is that wholesale gas prices have fallen 
very, very sharply since the forecasts in November, August last year. And so that means you can have faster growth. We no longer have a recession in the Bank of England's forecasts. And you can have lower inflation. So that is just you know good news. So in that sense, things will be looking up. But it all depends on how bad people expected it to be in mm. that period. I don't think anyone's going to be feeling the world is suddenly much better. They're better off than five years ago. Loads of people won't be. So even though it's much better than we feared it could be last November when it was looking absolutely dire, it still isn't going to be a very pretty picture. And Delphine, when you look at real wages over the lifetime of this government, how are people going to feel compared with how they felt back in 2010 when the Conservatives first took office in that coalition government? They're going to feel like not much has changed and that that's not what they were expecting. I mean, real wages have pretty much flatlined for about a decade. Mm. And at the moment, they're falling. And this should correct itself over the next few years, but it's certainly not a good picture. And I mean, as Chris said, a lot of the increases in mortgages are still feeding through. Only a third of the effect of higher interest rates so far on households' cash flows has happened so far. So two thirds is still to come. And that's before the Bank of England starts raising rates even further, which is with where markets think they will do. One of the other things the bank sort of acknowledged is that rise in mortgage rates hasn't been matched by the extent of the rise in savings rates. That spread is narrowing and people aren't very happy. So Rishi Sunak's pledge to cut inflation is proving a little bit more problematic than he probably imagined, but so too is his pledge to cut the number of migrants entering the UK. The government's pushing through a bill which will bar almost anyone entering Britain on small boats or without prior permission from claiming asylum. Justin Welby, the most senior cleric in the Church of England, wasn't impressed. And as you heard at the top of the programme, he called the bill isolationist and said parts of it were morally unacceptable. Here's how the Immigration Minister, Robert Jenrick, responded to that. Since 2015, half a million people have come to the UK for humanitarian purposes. So those who say that the UK or this Conservative government is in any way uh, inhumane or ungenerous are just factually wrong. But while Rishi Sunak and the media focus on small boat arrivals, the real rise in migration to the UK is happening through legal routes. The FT reported this week that official data due this month is expected to show that in 2022, net migration hit record levels, over 500,000, and some think it could go above 700,000. For a government that promised to cut net migration, that's a bit of a problem. So Delphine, what's driving it? There have been quite a lot of one-off factors in the last year's surge, and some of them are indeed humanitarian. There have been quite large numbers coming in from Hong Kong as well as from Ukraine. There's also been a very large pickup in student numbers, which might be partly a post-pandemic bounce back and is not something that you would necessarily see sustained. There's also the fact that most international students don't stay in the UK forever. Most go home. But that's causing the government a bit of discomfort, as we saw with these reports that they're going to want to stop postgrads bringing their dependents with them when they come. Will that make much of a difference? I mean, there is a number of people coming in through that route. I think what people see as a more significant draw for students is the route that's been reopened recently to stay and stay in job hunt for two years after people graduate. That's not a bug. That's a feature of the policy. The idea is that it's good for the UK to have people who are pretty highly qualified, pretty well settled in the country already come and move into good jobs. So ministers aren't revisiting that policy. 
There were reports in the past that they might want to redraw the boundaries, but at the moment there doesn't seem to be a suggestion they're going down that route. Mm. I think the idea of stopping students working after they, they graduate would be over the Treasury's dead body, wouldn't it, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's only relatively recently, isn't it, Delphine, that this has been brought back in, that they, you can stay for two years. But it's a thing that the Treasury likes for two reasons. One is because you have people who are highly qualified who are likely to work and pay taxes and pay more than they receive, so the Treasury sees that as a plus. But also, universities are one of the great export earners of the UK economy. I think one of our colleagues, Alan Beatty, worked out this week that the UCL was nearly as large in terms of exports as the fishing industry. It's always the fishing industry. Yeah, good old fishing industry. We always do that because (laughs) it's small. Half a billion pounds, University College London. Yeah. And student fees, incredible. Yeah, it is just extraordinary. So these numbers are very large and the Treasury certainly don't want to give that up. Yeah. So the Office of Budget Responsibility, the official watchdog, said in its report in March that they expected net migration to run about 245,000 a year. Do you think that's realistic? I think it's realistic in terms of the supply and demand. You could have it higher than that if you let people in. And we certainly did when we had free movement in the when we were a member of the European Union. It's not always the case that Britain is hugely attractive. This is happening in very, very many advanced economies. And the figures such as 245,000 a year is not excessive. And it's something that the UK has dealt with quite easily over the past 10, 15 years. But it might be a number that at some points begins to have massive political salience like it did in 2016. And it might do particularly because of things like housing, where housing numbers are not rising probably as much as 245,000 per year. So you get a bigger squeeze on one of the real costs that everyone has to face. The other thing it seems to show is that the post-Brexit immigration system we now have is more liberal than people thought it would be. And in particular, it's more liberal for employers who want to bring people in. Mm. And there's been a lot of business lobbying for the government to widen visa routes to make it easier to bring in people in some of the lower qualified roles that were coming freely from the EU before Brexit. But what we are actually seeing is much larger numbers of people coming in on skilled worker visas than we expected especially into the healthcare sector through the government's own recruitment drive, but also in roles that we haven't particularly seen people using visas for in the past. And that's actually one area where inflation is going to play a role because there is a salary threshold for using skilled worker visas. And at the moment, it's being eroded quite a bit by inflation. And it's fascinating that the Brexit referendum was to quite a large extent about controlling migration. Since Brexit, net migration from the EU has been broadly flat. And what we've seen is just a very large increase of non-EU migration to the UK. Well, I think the story is that this is controlled migration in that it's what the policy achieves. Yeah, global Britain. I mean, this is a bit of a simplistic question, Chris, but is net migration at quite high levels good for the economy? Depends on who comes in, of course. So you can say that low-skilled, high net migration probably has very little benefit overall for the economy. It doesn't have big costs either. High-skilled inward net migration is generally thought to be good for the economy, good for the public finances, but less good over the very long term when people come settled and then start having kids and all the things that cost the state money. So in the short term, better than the longer term. But it does make your public finance forecasts look better over a five-year horizon. Oh, massively. Absolutely, yes. Good for the Treasury. Okay, but so Delphine, Madeleine Sumption from the Oxford Migration Observatory was saying that she expected 
in the next few years, net migration numbers to fall off as this big surge of arrivals starts to leave again. The problem for the government is the other side of the election when that starts to happen, right? I'm not sure how the politics on this will play, because one thing we have seen in the polls is that people care a lot less about migration than they did at the time of the referendum. We haven't yet seen enough new, fresh research to know how that stands up to the latest small boats developments. But there is also just a very strong narrative coming from business and I think a perception that's sort of shared by lots of people that we have seen labour shortages emerging in lots of places where migration from the EU was shut off. Delphine and Chris, thanks for joining us. This week, the FT revealed that ministers are grappling with the likely cost of compensating victims of what's been described as the worst treatment disaster in the history of the NHS. The contaminated blood scandal, which dates back to the 1970s and 80s, is a grim saga. Ministers accept the moral case for compensation and are privately saying it could cost between five to ten billion pounds. I'm joined by Sarah Neville, our global health editor, and by Barry Flynn, ex-chairman of the Haemophilia Society. He's in his 60s and was infected with hepatitis C, and he and his family have suffered terribly. Sarah, first of all, can you explain what happened? Yes. Well, if I can inject a slightly personal note here, I remember back in the mid-80s when I was a young reporter on a regional paper in South Wales and the shock we felt when it emerged that some of the local hospitals had got blood that was contaminated with HIV. And HIV itself was quite a newly diagnosed disease. And I think this started to slightly sort of reframe the narrative around HIV, which at that time was still being depicted by the tabloids as a gay plague. And suddenly, here was evidence that you could go into hospital and have a regular blood transfusion or particularly be a haemophiliac looking to have a blood clotting agent called Factor Eight, and you could end up contaminated with this disease. The key issue was that the supplies of Factor Eight that were contaminated had been imported from the United Mm. States. So I think perhaps one of the sort of ironies, you know, Barry will tell us more about this, but that Factor Eight, this relatively new clotting agent, was seen as almost like a sort of miracle treatment that meant that haemophiliacs no longer had to spend very long periods in hospital. And so this emergent evidence in the mid-80s that, in fact, it had proved profoundly damaging to many of them was really shocking. And when did the NHS and the government accept that this has happened? Well, even back then, in the mid-80s, it was already acknowledging that this had happened, and that was when they started to heat-treat the Factor Eight, the clotting agent. So I guess you could say, almost 40 years ago, it was accepted. But what's taken a painfully long time is to get to the point of achieving any sort of a framework for workable compensation. And I think Some of the ministers who gave evidence to the public inquiry that's still ongoing were very frank in acknowledging that this had been a serial failure of administration after administration. It had been, I think, Jeremy Hunt, who's now the Chancellor, but of course was a very long-serving health secretary. He told the inquiry that the failure of successive administrations to find a resolution represented a failure of the British state. Hmm. So there's certainly been no lack of acknowledgement by the current crop of politicians that something went very, very badly wrong here. So Barry, what was your own experience and that of your family of this dreadful affair? Well, you've got it dead right there, Sarah. 
the treatment from the point of view of myself and my brother was after a lifetime thus far growing up with long spells in hospital, unable to do any kind of sport virtually, pretty much stuck in the house, damaged joints because we spent a lot of time either in wheelchairs or on crutches or wearing calipers, etc. Just in time for us to get our O-levels and A-levels, my brother and I started taking home treatment just in time to get us off to university. And uh, life was transformed. And I did biochemistry. It was kind of in the 80s when having sort of stayed in touch with certain scientific papers and things, I got wind of this HIV black cloud that was coming over from America and, you know, rumors of it going down through blood. And I guess I started modifying my behavior somewhat because the hemophilia treatment center I was calling into to get my medication, you'd get various brands of it. And I was frankly nervous of American brands. So I would undertreat myself, build up stocks of the UK medication and try not to use the American stuff. Sometimes it was unavoidable and try to get my brother to, to do the same. Uh, I don't know how much he listened to me. My brothers don't. <laughs> uh, but I distinctly remember the day when I got a call from a doctor because I'd been getting a test for HIV. And he said, you're negative. And so I was happy. But he said, well, you're negative, but that's just one test. It's not a very good test. We'll have to do four, five, six tests before we can say you, you don't have it. And then I had to ring my brother and he told me he was positive. I mean, we had no idea what the ramifications of that were at the time. Thank God in a way. But um, that was when the nightmare began, if you like, around about 1986. So you were infected with hepatitis C, weren't you, I think, at this point? Yes. So at, at that point, people were vaguely talking about non-A, non-B hepatitis because virtually everybody who got blood uh, products got hepatitis B, which meant you had the you know flu-like symptoms for a while and went a funny colour and what have you. But then it tended to settle down to all intents and purposes. But nobody knew much about this non-A, non-B. But it became vaguely, you know, known that most hemophiliacs had that as well. So both you and your brother were infected by contaminated blood. Yes. What was it like trying to be heard by the NHS, by the government? What was the official response? I wasn't aware of a response at the time, frankly. You know, at the time, HIV was, you know, death sentence. So I just felt awesome sorrow for my brother. And, um, you know, we tried to rally around him as, you know, the situation became more and more stark. Because frankly, the doctors were in shock as well. I don't know how much training they got in how to deliver these messages, but they pretty much, you know, gave it to them right between the eyes. You know, I remember my brother in tears ringing me up because him and his wife were trying for family. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, I wouldn't bother because you're not going to live long enough to enjoy being parents. Unwittingly, my, my brother had infected his wife. Um, so tragically, she ended up dying as well. And your brother died too. Yep. So Sarah Neville, so Brian Langstaff published an interim report into the scandal last month, making it clear that ministers should set up a compensation scheme immediately. Is that going to be straightforward? 
it's not because I think one of the things that still has to be decided is how the payments are going to be weighted, how they're going to place a value on different aspects of loss of earnings power. I mean, one of the things that Sir Brian announced in his most recent report was that he wanted the relatives who could be compensated to be expanded from bereaved partners, who he mentioned in a report last year should be compensated. But the latest report, he said also children who had lost parents should be compensated, and indeed parents who had lost children. Mm. So that, of course, greatly expanded the pool of people who are going to be entitled to compensation. And I, think, and I think siblings of children who are infected, carers, I mean, quite a big group of affected people. Which I guess is how we're getting up to that very high figure, George, that you mm. had a good scoop on just a few days ago. I think that was 10 billion, wasn't it? Mm, five to 10 billion. Is yeah. being banded around within government as a likely mm. cost. So, yes, it's an extraordinary bill coming home to roost after all these years, after these, you know, 40, 50 years since this actually happened. It was the supplies from the US that were contaminated. And what happened was, I think there was originally a pledge that the UK would become self-sufficient in Factor 8. That hadn't happened. There was a huge demand. The NHS, the government, wound up filling that demand by importing from the US. So, Barry, what sort of compensation do you think those infected and affected should be receiving after all these years of suffering? Well, I think, you know, talking about the cost is the wrong way of looking at it. If you're talking about the cost, it's a fraction of the cost of the nuclear submarines program. It's a small fraction of the cost of high speed two and its dubious benefits. You know, we are a gigantic economy and focusing on the cost is the wrong way around. I would much rather focus on the value to the thousands of people who have had their lives massively blighted by it. You know, imagine being a young child who watches his parents, at least one of his parents, if not both of them, you know, take years to die a hideous protracted death. Mm. It's one and the other one has to give up work to look after them. If they were left orphans, brothers and sisters were split up and sent to different parts of the country to be institutionalized in various ways. So my parents had to watch their daughter-in-law and son die an awful death. You know, any hopes they had of grandkids went out the window from that point of view. Both died, didn't even care about compensation, I don't suppose. But, you know, it's blighted lives and compensation is some measure that the government accepts that it was their fault. Sarah, you've covered the NHS for many years. Does it surprise you that there was this sort of period where the authorities just seemed to be in denial and not hearing voices like Barry's? I think, sadly, there's a long history of the NHS trying to avoid acknowledging scandals like this. I mean, we've seen it particularly through multiple maternity scandals, which have only come to light many, many years later. I mean, I'm not saying that whistleblowing particularly came into play with this affair, but it is very hard to be a whistleblower in the NHS because it's a culture of closing ranks where there is resistance to acknowledging anything that could lead to a compensation bill. So sadly, I think this does come in a long line of similar occasions where there's been fault and the NHS has been slow to acknowledge it. And Barry, finally, do you think we're finally getting towards a point of closure after this whole sad affair? 
Um, well, so my faith in government has been shaken over the decades. So, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. They still seem to be, you know, trying to focus on the cost rather than really genuinely seeming to be giving regular updates on how they're getting along putting this mechanism together and finding the money. You know, the numbers are terrible, but the statistics are even worse when it comes to people with bleeding disorders. You know, they talk about 3,000 people having died, but what isn't focused on is that there are only any time about 6,000 hemophiliacs in the country because it's one in 10,000. And of those, 2,000 are severely affected. So in the context of that, when you read statistics, you know, like 13, 1,400 people with hemophilia were infected with HIV, that is 50, 60% of severe hemophiliacs. Yeah. There's not many other instances where you can point to a segment of the population and say the NHS responsible for the deaths of half of that group of people. Every three weeks, another person dies of either HIV or, or hepatitis. I didn't say, you know, this HIV thing, you know, it, it was like a rapid wave hitting you. So the deaths came quickly and then the treatment came and the death stopped. Mm. Uh, but the hepatitis is just like a creeping death thing because it, it takes place over years and even decades. But once you've got cirrhosis and liver damage and liver cancer, then, you know, it's just slow and inexorable uh, and it isn't going to stop. So the longer the government faff on with this, People are dying every month. Right. It's a disgrace. It should have been done decades ago. Several countries, even Ireland, they paid out in the 90s. So all this talk about 5 to 10 billion, well, you should have spent 50 million 40 years ago and there wouldn't have been the problem. Barry Flynn and Sarah Neville, thanks for joining me. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. The FT's Political Fix was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder. The executive producer is Manuela Saragossa, and the sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.